O God, whose Son Jesus is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls each of us by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, as I, as I say, um, we have a hard lesson before us, and then we have kind of a double lesson. So you know, why cover 10 verses when you can cover 20? But this gets all of the woes all in one fell swoop here. Um, and this, this would be a fine example of sometimes where I, I've, I've said before about how there's a thought out there that when Jesus speaks, he says nothing but nice things, and it's like flowers and roses all the time. This is a great example where this is just not the case. These are hard lessons here. These are hard words of his. To He's hammering the Pharisees and the lawyers here. So to get us thinking into this passage, have you ever heard somebody say um, something to the effect that I don't like church because it's full of hypocrites? To that, I typically respond, well, come on down. We always have room for one more. And I only say that sort of in jest because the reality is it's very difficult uh, to be consistent with what we say, with what we say we believe, and then our actions. And actually, down to the nth degree, it finds us out and we are all hypocrites because of that inconsistency. But have you ever met a phony? Somebody who maybe takes a stand, and it, and it could be that somebody, that you know, this person you're talking to that says, um, they like the church, but they don't like the hypocrites. It may be that they've run on to somebody like this that's a phony. And a phony may be somebody who takes a strict uh, stand on a moral issue, and it's kind of a, a religious stance, very strict and very hardcore, but their hearts are not changed. They're, they're, they've not been um, transformed at all in any other way in their actions other than they have a hardcore, correct standing on a particular moral issue, or maybe a handful. They're excited about like obeying the law, but their hearts have not been transformed. Their hypocrisy is something that even non-believers can see. Now, these people, they haven't been set free. They haven't been set free by grace they have been bound by sin. They think they know Jesus, so now they're bound by the law. And they are fervent law keepers. They strive for external signs of a clean, holy life. But that's without rendering their heart to the Lord. They practice an outward law keeping, but they know nothing of grace. If, those, if that kind of description can ring a bell with you at all... That's the kind of people that Jesus is about to yell at. So, in this lesson, we, uh, we see that empty religiosity seeks to be seen by man rather than God. So, it's all about the externals. So, the first thing we're going to see is that empty religiosity cannot clean the heart. So, a person cannot clean what needs cleaned, no matter how much we try. And I find this very interesting because, you know, the, this text is old. It's a long time ago that Jesus walked. It's a long time ago that he yelled at these people. But what they are trying to do, we still see people trying to do the same thing today, and we ourselves are tempted to do the same thing. We want to clean ourselves up to make ourselves right before God. Look with me in verse 37. It says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. 
So he went in and reclined at table. As Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So let's let's set the stage a bit. Who are these Pharisees? What does this mean? Well, there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees. The Sadducees were of like upper class kind of people, and the the Pharisees were of of a uh, common class that that Jesus was from. Their name Pharisee even means the separate ones. So they were they were separated out from among the people as really holy people. They were committed to holy living by keeping the rituals of the law. And as a young man would be interested in becoming a Pharisee, he would have to undergo a long probationary period to prove himself in his ability to keep the law. And of course, he would be under strict scrutiny during this time. They so revered the law of God that they built a hedge around it, so to speak. They encrusted it to protect the law. And they wanted to be sure that they kept it down to the nth degree. The Mishnah, which is a collection of oral teachings of uh, the Jewish teachings, it says that tradition is a fence around the law. So the Pharisees would draw sharp contrasts between them and everybody else who did not keep tithing laws as well as they did. That's one, that was a major thing that set the contention between them and others because of their, their willingness and ability to tithe. And then, of course, when they felt so good about themselves, what they did, they looked down their nose at everybody else. So then there's this tension there. So their empty religiosity left them wanting as their spiritual eyes grew dark. Now, Jesus, um, and, and, and we've got to go back uh, a while to get back to a previous lesson, but in chapter 11, Jesus had just warned the people about the spiritual light growing dim. And so it was actually in response to this, those hard words, that this Pharisee invites Jesus to come and dine at his table. Now, I find this very interesting. The Pharisee hears that your light may be growing dim. He heard the hard words of Jesus, and so he invites Jesus to come to his house for lunch. Jesus knew that something was up, but he took the invitation anyway, and then he's going to stir the pot. And so he didn't wash his hands through this ceremonial washing before the meal. Now, this set the Pharisees off, because this is just what you do. And so, he then responds in 39, and it says, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. So Jesus is here attacking their externalism. So these external ceremonial things that they're doing to make themselves right before the Lord, he's attacking that. They're practicing the law without any transformation of their hearts. And Jesus says that it is not what you do on the outside that makes you clean, but it's what happens to you on the inside. If the Lord has regenerated you, if the Lord has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, then you will want to give the Lord as alms these things that are inside of you. You will offer those to the Lord and say, Lord, would you take these things from me? So 
That's the setting, but the lesson applies to us. What is it that you are willing to give to the Lord as alms in response to what he has done for you? Are you willing to give him your greed? Are you willing to give him your malice, your anger, your bitterness, your jealousy, your laziness, your apathy? Are you willing to give him your desire to be seen by man rather than him? These folks are so keen on cleaning the outside to make themselves right, but they can't make themselves be right on their own, on the inside. And they can't clean what needs cleaned. The Holy Spirit needs to do this. And if they've, if they've had a nudge of the Holy Spirit, this is where then that personal responsibility comes in and we give over to the Lord these things that separate us from Him. Because He has stirred this in us. And so at this point, Jesus pronounces six woes on these Pharisees and lawyers. And he divides it into threes. There are three that are directly to the Pharisees, and then there's going to be three that are directly to the lawyers, or scribes, or those who know the law. So there are a few interchangeable terms that are used, but you have the Pharisees and then the scribes or slash lawyers. So we see that empty religiosity ignores justice in the first woe. Verse 42 says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, this I find is an interesting passage because some will say that the New Testament speaks nothing of tithing. And I'm pretty sure we just read a verse that talks specifically about tithing, and it is commended by Jesus. And then in Matthew 23, it's the same story, so the, that verse is essentially repeated with, the, with a few different herbs thrown in. But it's, it is, tithing is commended. I think when we get into Acts, there's a different standard that's set, and it's like 100% of what you have. So if you're in conversations around a water cooler about what it is you owe the Lord, and whether 10% is even reasonable at this point in time, when I would rather give him one or a nickel or two, the reality is... This 10 thing is still a, it's, it's still a guide. But if you want to press it further, flip over to Acts 2 and Acts 4, and you'll see that the people who first believed gave everything to the Lord. And the reality is, is we can't give him enough to repay him for what he has done for us. And the reality is, is all we have belongs to the Lord. We say this every week. So we ought to recognize that he really is deserving of the 100%. But... We'll, we could keep a standard of 10 and be in keeping with the Bible. And that's like, those, we say it's his tithes and our offerings. So if we want to give more to other ministries and stuff, that comes beyond the 10. That's just a bit of a side lesson because the text actually speaks to it. I get to mention it. So in this situation, though, they're interested in tithing on down to this like nth degree on things that I wouldn't think mattered, like mint, dill, and cumin, on spices. But they ignore matters of justice and mercy. What kind of Christians are we if we actually do all the checkbox things? We attend church. We attend Bible study. We teach our children to say yes, sir, and no, ma'am. But we don't have compassionate hearts to speak up for those who have no voice. What if... The church is not willing 
to see those who are oppressed and speak truth into those situations. What if you do all the checkbox things, but your heart is not transformed and you have a hard heart and therefore you're not moved by compassion to extend grace to those who are in need of grace? See, this is what the Lord requires of us. Micah 6, 8, I'm sure you're familiar. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love it and to love kindness or what I'm familiar with would say and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So whether we look good on the outside or not, do you do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? How is your life different because of this grace you have received from the Lord? Is your life different because of this grace that you receive from the Lord? How might your life be more different because of this grace you've received from the Lord? The next woe we see is empty religiosity encourages pride. Verse 43 says, Woe to you Pharisees! And it, in, our, in our English translation, these things have exclamation points after each woe. So he, he really is he's yelling, Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So these, these, I, that's, I think it's pretty well self-explanatory. These, these Pharisees liked the seats in the synagogue that were the best seats, which would be uh, kind of these seats. Sometimes I've been in even Baptist churches, and they'll have seats up here in my dad's Baptist church. Whoever was the deacon that was on for the day sat in the church seat, in the fancy, like, kingly seat back here, and where you could be seen by the crowd. Now, that's not why Baptists do it. It's not why the Methodists would do it here. But that's the kind of thing that was going on is why they liked it. This is what he said. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm not reading into this. This is just what he's saying. He said they liked the best seats so that they could be seen, so that they could be seen in their worship. You can imagine there, when, it's, when it's these sad passages, their downtrodden faces. And what Jesus is saying is they have a way about them that is not consistent with their faith. They don't really, they are not moved by what the Lord is saying, but they may appear so. And then the, and in the marketplace as well as in the sanctuary, they get greetings from one another that are like these very elaborate greetings that are puffing one another up. And so what this story, what his point here is, is that they're receiving glory from man and there is no glory directed to the Lord. This time for worship, they are being worshipped, and they are receiving, they're glory stealers. Now, that's easy to describe about them, but what about us? Are we, how are you a glory stealer? And we would like to think that we are not. Every woe in here, I would like to think, no, that does not apply to me. Could we just flip the page and say something nice and soft to me, please? The, part, the bad part is, is they all apply to each one of us, so somehow we are glory stealers. If you're in a place of honor, how do you handle places of honor? If you've been honored, are you puffed up with pride? And does it matter to you to the point that you desire that? What if you're not recognized for your contributions, particularly in this case, like in worship? Do you desire to be recognized by your, for your contributions? Would you be hurt if you were not? Are you willing to serve and serve the Lord in either in his sanctuary or in his kingdom to further the cause of Christ anonymously, without recognition, 
to be to be the one behind the scene, or perhaps you're the one that's being seen, but nobody's recognizing you. Is that going to be okay with you, or do you need that glory, or are your or are your motivations true enough that we're doing what we do so that the glory is going to God? These are the things that we we struggle with. These things we just do, and if if you if you're not in a position where you struggle with these things, then maybe you've not experienced those kinds of temptations and maybe the Lord's calling you into greater service for him. But we have a difficult time wanting praise from man, but receiving our, our, our willingness to give our glory to God. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for us today. Um, we in the, our kind of our American church, our, our culture, the fact that we are consumerists, uh, we're great consumers. We're born consumers. We go to church and we're consumers. If the church feeds us and does what we want it to do, when we want it to do it, how we want it to do it, if the music guy's good, if the music or if the, if the band's good, if the lights are good, if these things are good and the message is good, we might come back. And if not, just like every other consumeristic experience, we go down the street and we think that that's okay. That's not his idea of church, really. His idea of church is a place where we can join hands with other sinners and and, and be committed to them in whatever's going on. And we're committed despite the preacher, despite the music leader, because we're committed to what the Lord's doing in and among his people. We have developed celebrity pastors in the church. We, we develop celebrity th- people throughout our Christian world all the time. It gets to be challenging for those people when we set them on pedestals, when we have high expectations. I used to hang out with some men in, a, in, a, in an accountability group, and there was a great deal of reverence put on the pastor. And they really did set him up on like a pedestal. Some did. That's a scary place to be, as, especially I say this as a pastor. Now, you all know me well enough that I, I like to let my sins show through. I don't want to think that I'm putting on the right, the perfect act up here. So then when you start seeing chinks in my armor, you get disappointed. No, my chinks stand out pretty big, and I hope they do. Now, I do have a disadvantage in this crowd over what I had when we were in Virginia, because people here think that I'm actually all these things, because your, your title is a pastor. Now, you don't know where I've come from. I really am still just the lube dude up the street. And I love Jesus, and I want other people to love Jesus. I'm all kinds of flaws. We don't want to be consumers and setting our pastors on, or, or worship leaders on pedestals, so that we set their sta- our standards for them so high that they can't meet them. Next, we see empty religiosity leads people astray. Verse uh, 44 says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is a, it's just a strange... This is a strange thing. You know, this is not something when you're aggravated at your spouse that you just yell at them and say, you're like an unmarked grave. What, is, what does this even mean? And why is he like yelling at the, it, it? And this is, a bad, this is obviously a bad thing. Well, as a Jewish person, if they were on their way to the temple and they walked over an unmarked grave, they would be desecrated. They, they, they would be unclean. So then they walk over this unmarked grave. They are unclean. Now they go into the temple. Now the temple is unclean. It has a, there are snowball effects of this, but they did not know because the grave was unmarked. That's why in Matthew it uh, talks about 
the whitewashing of the of the tombs so that there has to be an we have to recognize what is a grave well he's saying these people are like those unmarked graves there's a danger that maybe they people are drawn to them because of their religiosity because of the way they keep the law so people are drawn to them but when they come they're worse off than they were before they got there because they are not shown the true gospel they're not shown true love they're shown more rules they're contaminated by these people who are so excited about meticulous law keeping i find that interesting Next, we see empty religiosity is burdensome. So this is where he turns. He, he pivots. And, and, but if, if you're in the crowd and you're hearing this guy yell at you, this known teacher that the crowds are following, would you put yourself in this lawyer situation. Who, who is it that's going to speak up and say, but I'm offended? This lawyer does. Says so one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Also, a little, like, cryptic. What, do you, what does that mean, Jesus? Well, these Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes, would inc- as they encrusted this, the law with all these um, regulations and traditions, it was, it, they, they were um, very creative. And so they just kept laying on more tradition, more tradition, more tradition. Because, they, because, for instance, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So on it you should not do any work, neither should your um, male servant, your maid servant. It, it just goes on that nobody in your households do any work. But what is work? What now? But now what does work really mean? And perhaps you need to mow your yard and it's a sunny day on a Sunday and it's been raining all week. Does that count? Does it count if you had a riding mower, not a push mower? And it gets on and on and on. What if your yard's small? So it only takes 12 minutes for my yard. I love that. But what, but what if your yard took 30 minutes? What if your yard took an hour and a half? Is there a breaking point where it finally comes over the line to where now this is called work? That's the kind of thing they did. So they set up 39 um, categories for what they called work. And out of those 39, those could be developed even more. They got things down to the weight of what you could carry, and even time, much like that description, which seems ridiculous. But if you're caring about keeping the law, you care about those meticulous details. This is what they're into. But what about us? Do we depend upon tradition today, which keeps us from God's word? Is there an encrusting of God's word? I think so, and I think it shows up today in the way of, especially in, like in an evangelical church world we live in, someone introduces a new system for Christian living, and people are quick to embrace it and pass it around, let's read the books, but these things can become a lair between us and God's Word. And so we need to be very aware of anything that encrusts God's Word and keeps us from it, no matter how healing it may be and and that is and it's not just you know the idea that we're going to read a book on helpful ideas on biblical marriage and so on yes that's fine but we need to read the book as well so the next thing is empty religiosity is opposed to god's word verse 47 and this this one is a this one seems strange as well woe to you 
For you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Well, this doesn't seem like a horribly bad thing. And would you not build perhaps something to honor them, some sort of a monument to honor some former prophet? Well, since Jesus is yelling at them, they have poor motives here somehow. And what it appears is that uh, it was people just like these people, it was their ancestors who killed the prophets. And in this current generation, they were sent the last of the prophets. They were sent John the Baptist. They were sent Jesus himself. They didn't believe or recognize the prophets. And there's this thing where if the uh, job of the prophet is to deliver God's word, when you're killing the prophet, if you're silencing the prophet, you're silencing God's word. Now, these scribes and lawyers had given their lives to the study of God's word, but they were actually murderers of God's word because they were murderers of the prophets, those who would bring God's word to the people. And so in this particular generation, they were going to be held accountable for all the, pro- all the prophets who had died from Abel, that's one of the, the, one of the first children, all the way through the whole of the Old Testament, so that all would be laid upon their shoulders and they would be held accountable. As our, you know, what does that mean for us? As our, as our greed, as our pride grows, we are less willing to submit. This, now this is just, this is how this goes. And we hate the word submission. But what is interesting is when we hear God's word, we instinctively know that it calls us to submission. Those who will argue with you that your faith is just fairy tales, they know this. Romans 1 says that everyone knows that God exists because of creation. So why, if that's true, then why doesn't everybody love him? Why, why isn't it that everybody is in church? If, if everything's this good, why aren't these pews full? Here's the crux. If I listen to God's word and it's telling me to submit, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that because I am king of my heart. You, God, are not king of my heart, and I don't want you to be. And we start the rub when we start hearing God's word, or a friend of ours is sharing God's word with us. Those, are, those were not fun conversations before you came to Christ. Now, as you're in Christ, it could be a, a complete stranger. You're shopping at Sam's, and somebody says something to you about Jesus, and you're, you're just all on. But before you came to Christ, it could be your closest friend. could have been your mother to talk to you about Jesus. It's this friction thing going on because we do not want to submit. Chapter 3 of Genesis. That's why. Whatever your problem is, chapter 3 of Genesis. We were bent from the fall to resist him. We have this enmity between us and God. He is is not our friend. We say we're all children of God. No, those who he has called, who he has regenerated, who he has set his love on. Yeah, okay. Those are children of God. The problem is we don't want to submit. So we ignore his word. We keep it at bay. And so if we can keep it at bay, we're not pushed to consider giving up any of that stuff, that greed, the malice, the envy, the hate, all those things. But we must be willing to receive God's word so that we, too, are... um, not going to be held accountable for our ignorance of God's word, not the, so that we're not going to be held accountable for our lack of appreciation. Um, as, the, as these people who he's yelling at, 
were going to be held accountable for all the prophets that came before him. And he, he is indignant when he says these people should know because of the prophets that came before. We have now all those, plus we have Jesus, plus we have all the New Testament writers, plus we have 2,000 years of church history. We have people who have expounded on every detail that one could possibly imagine. You say, well, what about whatever? Well, if you really care, there's like a library full on that very topic of theology. It could be answered. All I have are questions. I have questions. Well, if you have questions, we can find answers. And if we continue to ignore the truth that's been laid down before us and how God, the sovereign God, has preserved that truth, we too will be held accountable. It's a woeful lesson for us as well. Finally, we see that empty religiosity conceals God's word. It's verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who were entering. So he delivers this final blow to the lawyers, which was much like the final blow he delivered to the Pharisees in that first set of three. The lawyers or scribes were keeping people from God's word. This, this, is, why, this is why Jesus is aggravated. He's, he's not fending for his life. He's fighting for God's word and the hardness of hearts for people not being willing to listen to God's word. And then in this case... These religious people keeping people from God's word. It says that they didn't get it right. He's yelling at them because you didn't get it right. You don't understand God's word. And yet, because of your ignorance and because of your, your, uh, this meticulous law keeping you have, you're keeping others from it. This is a bit like the whitewashed graves. But when a legalist abuses God's word to promote himself and make himself look grand, he keeps others from entering into God's word in beauty and truth. This is, I, I th- the, the whole thing for the legalist is um, there are many people who I've run into that are law keepers. They know God's word, they know what it says, and they know, and, and they're going to stand firm on these things. But there's no grace in them. And it's in that kind of approach that as they yell at everybody else, Becky, when she first started working at this plant, there was a particularly religious guy there who would condemn anybody else if they were participating in um, Halloween or trick-or-treat. Because, you know, it's goblins and, and all those things and, and things of the devil and things that, of witches. Is that all it is? Or could your kids actually participate in it? If you participated in it, are you messing with Satan? So, okay, I don't think so. But if you take a re- cold religious stance with, in your workplace, not knowing where anybody's coming from, and that's what you then place on everybody else... Those are pretty car- cold, hard, strict rules. And you've got to say, where's your grace in this? If that's what you decide to do, I say more power to you. If you don't, if you don't want to participate in that, if you think, it, I don't want to wig my kid out, I don't want my kids exploring, okay, fine. But to stand and make that law for your cubicle neighbor over here, I think gets a little carried away. I think it becomes empty religiosity. Where's your compassion and where's your heart? And how can you apply the gospel? How can you apply grace in these particular matters? So we ourselves, I want us to be discerning people. We can only be discerning people if we're going to be spending time in God's word. I want us to be students of the book. Now, we can, we can be readers of the books of marriage. We can be readers of the books of raising our children in a godly way. And these things are very, very good. But they can't take place of the study of his word. So we want to hear the word preached in our pulpit, and we want to study and apply the word in our personal lives. Verse uh, 
27 and 28, I think, gives a powerful punch to this lesson. He was saying some things, and then he gets done, and people were marveling at what he was saying. And This woman says in verse 27, it says, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O gracious God, we thank you that you've given us a story where your son Jesus is indignant about preserving your word. Lord, may you fill us with compassion. May you fill us with a concern and a care for the protection and preservation of your word, that we could be examples to our friends and our neighbors and our family members of grace that transforms, of grace that does not leave us untouched, but changes us from the very inside out. Lord, may you make us a people that is concerned about making your name great, a people who is concerned about your glory and not our own. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Ryan, you come. Let us pray.